The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. The hum of the water pumps could be heard from the road as officers hiked back and forth across the abandoned property, occasionally stopping to search the ruined pool near the house. Just beyond a pond near the back of the property where the pumps worked to drain the water, a backhoe sat preparing for excavation. Police could not offer any information on what they were searching for on the property. All I can release now is we're executing a search warrant, said Muskogee Police Department Public Information Officer Lynn Hamlin when asked if the officers were in search of a body. The presence of the construction equipment and the water pumps indicated the sort of thorough search typically associated with the hunt for a human body. A similar search took place in July 2018 on a Houston Street property when police began searching for the missing remains of Muskogee woman Kristen Richardson, who disappeared in May 2018. It was Kristen again with whom they were searching for now. Chesley Oxendine of the Muskogee Phoenix reported that Muskogee PD believed Kristen Sue Richardson to be missing and presumed dead. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club, Finding Kristen Sue Richardson. Welcome back and to our second cast. This is the third part of our series covering Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant. Today, we are going to be discussing the case of Kristen Sue Richardson, an indigenous woman, Cherokee, who went missing in May of 2018 and is considered missing and presumed dead. We wanted to take second cast a step further. We know that crimes against indigenous peoples of the U.S. and Canada are fairly underreported, much less investigated. So we decided to take that extra step. We found a case down in Oklahoma. It is not cold. It is considered active. There are leads, there are suspects, but nothing concrete. A woman has gone missing, rumored to have been murdered. Whatever the case, we hope to shed some light in the dark and bring Kristen Sue Richardson home, ending the swirling void of questions left in the space where fond memories of Kristen should be. But first, okay, there has been a gap between episode 16 and this one. And it was unavoidable, and we do apologize for making you wait. I was buying a house, moving out of an apartment, and selling a condo in another state. Tara was dealing with added work responsibility, home renovation, and unfortunately deaths in the family. And frankly, we underestimated the time that it was going to take us to thoroughly vet and investigate this case. Look, we've never done anything on this level of importance before. Not just a book. This is real life. Yeah. Most of our books are real life, but this is real, real happening right now. Yeah. And anything less than 100% accuracy, we really were striving to hit that marker. A lot rides on this. Lives are impacted, and we took this very seriously. And we prefer to delay on the side of quality because this is just too important. We hope you understand the gravity of us undertaking the telling of Kristen's story, an active case currently being investigated. And we're hunting a murderer. Mm-hmm. So grab a 
glass of wine, your drink of choice, maybe a snack. We'll be here for a little bit, but we're happy to be here and having you listen to us. Hopefully, you'll learn something and be able to share some stuff with us if you might know anything. Yeah. Now, for Robin Brown and Sherry Wright, the fear came on slowly. It was inconceivable that someone they knew, whom they loved, that family would disappear. You know, that happens on television programs, certainly not to them. They'd see missing posters in the news when a person had vanished, and we all have, inwardly cringing with concern and with hopes for the best. And Sherry, a dear friend of Kristen's, telephoned her again, and it went to voicemail, again. Now she wasn't leaving another happy message. This time, Sherry was agitated, disturbed, angry. Kristen hadn't been in contact since she left the Oklahoma concert on May 25, 2018. That was three. No, no, that was four weeks ago. It wasn't abnormal for Kristen to go off on an adventure. But to not respond for this long, this was not normal. And now what to do? Where was Kristen? Sherry called Robin, Kristen's sister, and they decided to call the police. They just couldn't wait any longer. The fear was grippingly real. This was real. This was happening. And from this point, the story would turn, heading into a place of terror where no one wanted to go. Our story takes place in Muskogee, Oklahoma, which is located in the Arkansas River Valley, a community in the suburbs of Tulsa. Google Maps will show you neighborhoods of craftsmen houses, neatly ordered in rows, two stories at most, given the tornado threats that plague the region known as Tornado Alley. This area is lower and flatter compared to the rest of Oklahoma. Muskogee lies on the edge between the Great Plains region in northeast Oklahoma, where the winds come sweeping down the plains, and the oak and hickory forest region of the eastern half of the state. The town has the usual banks, grocery stores, schools, barbecue, Chinese restaurants and churches. There's also the Castle of Muskogee, which is a Renaissance festival park. There's one quite near where we are out in Philly. Where is it? Manheim. Yeah, I was thinking Sterling, but that's in New York. Ironically, <laughs> everywhere I live, there is a Renaissance park super close to me. There's also the Three Rivers Museum, which is dedicated to creating historic events that dazzle the community and visitors, and the Creek Nation Casino. This is where Kristen Sue Richardson was living when she vanished that Friday, May 25th of 2018. That was the last day anyone had seen or heard from her. Kristen Sue Richardson, 51 years young, loved Hailstorm, but adored Lizzie Howell even more. Lizzie was her girl. Hailstorm was one of those bands that Kristen was looking forward to at the Rocklahoma concert that Memorial Day weekend. Kristen had been to many concerts, had maneuvered herself through the crowd, met the band, loved to hang around to sneak backstage afterwards. Kristen knew all the words to every song, and she'd play the drums, keeping the beat, and the energy would make anyone with her smile ear to ear. That was Kristen for Crash. She was nicknamed by, well, pretty much everyone in the school in Oklahoma. And if you were at Quick Trip or another convenience store where Kristen came out donning cargo pants and an ACDC t-shirt, you came in to buy something, you'd have made a new friend before you exited. It was just how it was with Crash. Friendly, giving, caring, she loved life and she shared all she had with anyone to eat. Now, this is no ordinary weekend for Chris, though. This is a weekend on which legends were made. Her plan was well known, as Chris had talked about it nonstop for months. Her excitement was palatable. She and her roommate, Carl Bryce, 
were heading out to Pryor, where the Rocklahoma concert was happening, a little less than an hour's drive away, and they were all set. Kristen's enthusiasm could barely be contained the closer they got to the date. Now, in this area, Rocklahoma isn't just another rock festival. No, 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 no. This is, quote, America's biggest Memorial Day party. It only imagine. I looked at the pictures. It is magnificent. I would have a freaking blast. All right. This is a music event that feels the pulse of eastern Oklahoma, crowning the holiday weekend. Rocking out, it has four official stages with on-site vendors, plus a host of unofficial camping parties that fill the area. What's really unique are these camping party aspect to it. It's made for a huge number of fans who party all weekend, nonstop, relaxing at their tent, their pop-up, their RV. Some of the bands that played that fateful weekend, in addition to Hailstorm, were Perfect Circle, Five Finger Death Punch, Poison, Stone Temple Pilots, Cheap Trick, Godsmack! Oh, excuse me. Um, clutch. <laughs> uh, the list goes on and on significantly. 77,000 fans attended Rocklahoma. That Rocklahoma. And it's feasible to say that the whole eastern portion of the state appreciates this as a cultural kicking off point for the unofficial summer. Yeah. Sounds massive. Yeah. So, Carl Brace, who we mentioned just a few moments ago, had been Kristen's next door neighbor when he ran into a terrible patch of bad luck. His house caught on fire and was largely gutted. So here was Carl needing shelter and want of a place to stay. And Chris, coincidentally needing a roommate, seemed obvious to her, so she invited Carl to move in. And Carl happily took her up on the offer. Seemed like a perfect fix, a win-win. Now, this is a great example of who Kristen was. Someone was troubled, needed a lift. She thought maybe she could help. Boom. That was it. She was all in. And she did it even before really considering if it was actually a good idea or not. Mm -hmm. So Sherry Wright and Kristen Richardson have been friends for the last 40 years, since elementary school, when their friendship grew from simple kindness. We talked to Sherry White about meeting her. Well, at this point, I'd like to introduce Sherry Wright and Morgan Knott, very, very good friends of Kristen Sue Richardson. And they have been involved in this for over the last two years. We'd like to ask them a few questions about Kristen. Sherry, you and Kristen have been friends for 40 years. Can you tell us how you and Kristen met? We met when we were 10 years old. She lived probably about a block away from, from where I live. And she had just started Hilldale Elementary. So I was fresh out of Catholic school. Yeah. And I remember I were getting on the bus at four or five. And I sat down, you know, nobody's talking or anything. And the next stop was Kristen. She got on the bus. And everybody's doing that, moving their books over and scooting over, you know, so she couldn't sit down. Right, just like kids do. Uh, yeah. And I was <laughs> feeling so bad for her. And just thinking, oh, my gosh. And, and I screwed her right over and said, you can sit down here and... A friendship was born. I mean, just like that. We raised more hell in the seventh grade than two little girls ever should. <laughs> oh, good for you. You'll get your pride. Isn't that fun? Oh, no. no. I didn't mean to. We were just being silly kids. <laughs> but that sounds like Kristen always stayed true to herself. And just her being who she was. Very outspoken, very open, very honest. If she went in 7-Eleven and didn't know anybody in the store, 
She certainly left an impression. They would not soon forget her. <laughs> she didn't like what you're wearing. She's going to go, oh, my God, what's happening? You know, or <laughs> Oh, my goodness. It sounds like that she was bullied a little bit, but seemed to give everybody a helping hand. Absolutely. She would give you the shirt off her back. Yeah. She was one of those people that I was always genuinely amazed and surprised by whatever came out of her mouth. I always expected it and couldn't wait to hear it at the same time. She's outspoken and, and she could take charge and I always felt safe. Good for her. I would say by the time she was 18, she knew exactly who she was. And that's when she really just started taking charge of her mom. Confident and fearless. That's it. And she knew what she had to do from the time she was 14. And hustled at work, due to make a dime. She knew no strangers. That's strange. She sounds like somebody I would have liked a lot. Mm-hmm. All right. So a little more background since we heard from Sherry. A little more background on Kristen. Now, she was always impulsive ever since she was a little kid, as Sherry kind of told us. She was born to Kay and Tom Kroger in Albert Lee, Minnesota, on October 14, 1966. She's a Libra. Her sister Robin and brother Kenneth rounded out the family. Softball was Kristen's game as a kid, and she'd recruit her siblings and scout out other kids to put a team together and really tried to include everyone so there'd be no hurt feelings. This is Kristen. I love that. But, you know, kids back then could be mean. And Robin told me she could always count on Chris to be her little protector. Um, Should any of ruffians go and try to pick on her? No way was Chris going to let that happen. Now, the neighborhood kids. Now, this definition changed regularly. You see, they had a unique and fun childhood with their parents operating a caramel apple wagon with the carnival. So how cool is that? Yeah. Right? Definitely makes for an interesting childhood. Oh, my gosh. So they traveled the route through the spring, summer, and fall through Minnesota down to Galveston, Texas, and then back up again. They went to state fairs, boomtown days, peach and blueberry pageants, runestone festivals, celebrations of the heartland, rooster days, farm fest, chili cook-off. <laughs> I mean, you name it. National sand bass. National sand bass festival. I don't know, but if we ever get out here to visit people, I want to go. They also had like the Cherokee National Holiday, lots of Native American functions up and down, towns far and wide. It just so, how cool is that? I just think that's amazing. Yeah, and as Kristen was Cherokee, her loss has also impacted the indigenous community in Muscogee and the region. The Cherokee National Holiday is held in Tahlequah as it celebrates the signing of the Cherokee Nation Constitution in 1839. It includes traditional Native American games like cornstalk and globin shooting, marbles, stickball tournaments, quilt shows, even a car show. Remember when we read in Trojo Far Moon, they had a lot of cars. Lots of cars. Lots of cars. They like their cars, so it kind of makes sense to have a car show. Vendors with authentic Native American foods and products came to sell their wares like artwork, pottery, blankets, and jewelry, and even fry bed and the wasabi, which was the berry sauce that we had in episode 15, 16. Mm-hmm. We like to continue keeping them, eating the food throughout. Absolutely. Um, but also the Cherokee National Youth Choir usually sings too, and the highlight of the celebration are the intertribal powwows held on the weekends. The history teacher here, I am such a sucker for these things. I go them all. Now we're about to get into some sad, sad statistics, though. Yeah. 
One of the reasons that we chose to tell Kristen's story is that she is one of a large number of Indigenous women who has been the victim of terrible violence. Yeah. And unfortunately, in the United States and our neighboring Canada, this kind of abuse and cruelty has reached unprecedented levels on tribal lands and in Alaskan villages. According to the Indian Law Center, more than 80% of women have experienced violence, and more than 50% have suffered sexual assault. Native Alaskan women suffer domestic violence rates up to 10 times higher than the rest of the nation. This data itself is limited because of the lack of concern and a reluctance to report these crimes. So these can be even low numbers. And on some reservations, not all, indigenous women are murdered at 10 times the national average. This makes it the third leading cause of death among indigenous women. These numbers are mind-numbingly horrifying. And a study done in 2018 determined that out of 5,712 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, only 116 of those were entered into the Department of Justice's database. This is nationwide. 116. That's barely 2%. However, these numbers still fail to convey the hurt the damage, the pain endured, and the impact on women and their children, including their family. And, you know, no wonder PTSD is three times higher than the rest of the population here. And the more we researched, the more terrible things we learned. Uh, to mention the government-granted genocide that wiped out roughly 90% of the American indigenous population that we discussed in Killers of the Fallen Moon. Fortunately, in January 2020, a presidential task force was created by the DOJ to examine issues of missing persons and violence against Native and Alaskan women. Well, it's about time. There's this serious need. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad to hear this. Now, listening sessions have taken place, and from what we've seen, there is some hope for improvement in the future. I did ask the Muskegee PD um, what is the status on this, and investigator Stephen Brown told us that, listen, they always try to treat every case exactly the same. However, with the inclusion of certain resources like NAMUS, N-A-M, capital U-S, they're working in conjunction with other agencies, has improved. So I'm really glad to hear that. We're definitely glad to hear that. Yeah, so hopefully they're on target for improving things. But what does remain problematic is for more than 35 years, the federal government has not allowed Indian nations to have any criminal authority over non-Indians. Now, this has resulted in an inability to prosecute non-Indians who reportedly commit 96% of the sexual violence against Native women. Yeah, that's enormous, right? And according to the last census, which is being updated as we speak, so this is the census from 2010, non-Indians now comprise about 76% of the population on Native lands, and 68% of that Alaskan Native villages. So you see how this might be a problem. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's a very, very big problem. Yeah. Now, many couples are now intermarried as well, indigenous and non-Indian. So if anyone commits an act of violence against a spouse, they can't be prosecuted by the Indian nation. And it's unlikely that he or she are going to be prosecuted by any level of government, local, state, federal, either. So unfortunately... The government task force hasn't addressed this yet. It's a loophole. I hope they will. They should. Yeah, we need to all be writing our government and saying, hey, 
look at this, you know. But starting somewhere is better than not starting. So at least they are beginning to look at this. And I really do want them to do a lot more than talk about it. But they're actually talking about it. Better than they did last year when they weren't talking about it. It's outrageous and it is completely unacceptable. And this really must be addressed by our judicial institutions. 100%. All right. Now, in spite of that, here is a fun fact. On July 9th, 2020, the Supreme Court answered the question of whether the Creek Reservation continued to exist after Oklahoma became a state. And the Supreme Court said, yes, and that half of Oklahoma belongs to them. Surprise! You see, Congress never passed a law to unmake the reservation. So the Muskogee Creek Nation issued a statement saying, quote, The Supreme Court today kept the United States' promise to the Muskogee Creek Nation as a protected reservation. Today's decision will allow the nation to honor our ancestors by maintaining our established sovereignty and territorial boundaries, end quote. Now, this ruling is mostly going to impact courts in eastern Oklahoma, so stay tuned. I just had to cheer a little bit when, when that went down. We'll definitely keep an eye on that one. Yeah. Especially since it's relating to this case. So. Yeah. All right, so where did we leave Kristen? Well, an unconventional little sister, enjoying the carnival life, selling the apples. The family enjoyed this vagabond-style lifestyle for many years. So they finally settled down in Muskogee, Oklahoma, when Kristen was about nine, so around 1976. Shortly thereafter is when she met Sherry, her best friend. Getting older, Kristen picked up an important talent. That is, she became a real-life Mona Lisa Vito for my cousin Vinny, but without the high hair, flashy dresses, or Brooklyn accent. Exactly. Kristen and her crew-cut t-shirts and jeans, she could take a car apart and put it back together. She was honestly a truly gifted grace monkey of any story that we've ever heard. She had a prize Buick that Sherry told us about. And she literally put that whole entire car together herself. It was a source of pride, and Chris just blew it on that car. She was definitely an artist with a car engine. Which I could do anything. I can put gas in it, kind of. Yeah, kind of. Great. I mean, you are from New Jersey. Don't you pump your gas for you? Yeah, we don't we don't <laughs> do that much there. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> well, Kristen also worked a number of jobs. You know, a lot of us have worked a number of jobs growing up, and both Sherry and Kristen worked at the truck stop not far from their home. Kristen was not the one serving you the food. Kristen was the person who serviced the trucks for the truckers. She cleaned and detailed the trucks, readying them for the next hundreds of miles coming up. And she loved it. She met all kinds of people, got gab away, letting that sparkle that she had of hers just light up that truck stop where everyone coming in and out knew who she was and looked forward to see her again. That big personality of joy. So how did this incredible, amazing, friendly, caring, kind, boisterous woman who loved losing hell just vanish? Um, let's get into that part of her story. Yeah. So Kristen last spoke to Sherry Thursday, the day before she was to leave with Carl Bryce, her roommate, for that long weekend at Rocklahoma. She drove a truck and she had a cap on it, one that she had decorated. And there's a photo of it on our blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com, along with a number of photos of Kristen and the video you'll be hearing shortly. Kristen intended to camp out in her truck at their sleeping bag 
They should have their lantern, cooler, folding chair, clothes, tarp, the usual stuff that you need for camping on a weekend. And Sherry told us what happened after that weekend came and went, and Kristen didn't call her and tell her how it went or answer her phone. She was just gone. She and Carl Bryce lived next to each other for years, and then she winds up taking Carl in. So, you know, what kind of relationship did they have? What kind of roommate was Carl? When, when he first moved in, everything was actually pretty okay. They'd known each other for years. They got along just fine as neighbors. He still had money from, from what is his property from next door. You know, he got some insurance money. So he still had that. She needed help with the bills. And then he was doing that. Oh, God, there was probably three or four months she never even mentioned a bill. And, and that's huge for her. And there was always the struggle. And I could tell a little bit of weight was off her shoulders. So at the beginning, it was just as fun and innocent. And she did her part, and everybody paid, and they were helping each other out. It probably ran like that about, about a year, year and a half before. There was just tension in the house. Just you walk in, and it's just there. You could just feel it. Sounds like a good roommate in a relationship, at least in the beginning. Now, Kristen was all excited that weekend going to see Hailstorm in Rocklahoma. Tell me about her preparation for that. She had the determination, and she meant it, and she'd been saving money and getting ready for probably three months. And she had a camper shell on the back of her truck and, and done all the windows. But no, she had the truck all decked out. They already had the campsite set up. And this an old family friend, and they were, of course, up here waiting on it. And they did that whole show. But, so they had the three-day campsite. They'd already paid for it. Already had their three-day passes, tickets, truck out. She's good and ready to go for the whole three days. She never had the opportunity to do that. Now, Kristen tells you she's all set. As far as you know, she goes to Rocklahoma. And now you're not hearing anything. When did you first get suspicious something didn't seem right? I started contacting Carl probably about five days. Five days after Rocklahoma, because even when he said that she had run off with somebody, I could see that. I thought I was going to give her two extra days in Rocklahoma. And then she'll come home. Yeah, well, she's ready. After about five days and not being able to get through on her phone, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Not answering calls on that voicemail, the voicemail, and I knew there was no getting through on her cell phone at all. That's probably when I started texting Carl, and he assured me she had taken off and everything was fine, and he had just talked to her. And I tell him, you know, you need to tell her to call me. He said he had a number that he was contacting her at. But he would never give me a number or the reacher. Mm-hmm. So when did you finally decide you were going to go over to the house? Right after Mom's noticed that something was wrong, I started driving by the house. Right. And I seen Carl and Cody outside. And I was like, Mom, we need to go over there, you know, at some point because it's not right. Like, something's wrong. And they were driving her truck. And I never saw Kristen. And that's what was so weird to me. And I kept seeing them at the same convenience store. And two or three times they were broke down. It was just weird. And I was like, okay, Mom, something has to be done because it's just not right. We did go by. We met Robin up the street and just kind of embarked on the planes and they were out of the driveway. And the first thing I did notice was there were two of the three dogs where it was Buddy, the great big pit bull. And he told me that he had run away on the 4th of July. Well, 
Buddy's face was like a semi-truck. This was a massive pit bull dog, and his face was enough to horrify you if you didn't know it. Oh, no. One thing Buddy couldn't do was run away. He was so old. When she let those dogs out, one of them just kind of took off like normal and would come back. One, she had to chase for blocks. <laughs> it was Buddy who did his business and walked back up to the porch. It was quite that. So I knew immediately right then that something is probably really more off than we ever even imagined. Right, because why are they lying about the dog? Yes, and then we noticed they had taken a black Sharpie and had written lawn service with a local phone number on the side of her truck. And it said, Paul Cody. And I thought, well, okay, I know they haven't just assumed her house at her truck. Where is Kristen? Tara, Carl is telling Sherry that he was hearing from Kristen, that he was receiving phone calls from Kristen after Memorial Day weekend, and at least for the next three weeks. Interesting, huh? We know, because it's very interesting, we know Sherry already found this weird. And Kristen's dog, what happened to him? He didn't run off, as Carl said. He was too elderly, too old to even barely move. Right. Yeah, this dog ran away. No, no way. Now, I did speak to Kristen's sister, Robin, who did tell me a really shocking story. You know, Kristen was missing, and Robin was kind of just driving around and doing something and to not be sitting still not doing something. And she came upon some trash bags that were just kind of discarded. Now, brace yourself if you're an animal lover. They, they caught her eye. And you know how you get that kind of weird feeling? Well, they were the same bags that Kristen had at her house. And something just drew her in. And she did what we always recommend and trust her gut. So she stopped, pulled over, went, and opened one of the bags. And inside it was a dog's head. And Robin was pretty sure it was Kristen's buddy, her missing pit bull. She froze. She just froze. But she left it there. You know, panicked, got in the car, and drove away. Now, she did report this to the police. I mean, was it her dog? Is it the missing buddy? Did someone kill the dog? So many things we just don't know. So we're not going to know for sure. I mean, unfortunately, if anything, this dog was probably one that would have protected Kristen, even if it couldn't move. Yeah. So it would have probably been very easy to take the dog out in the process. Yeah. So anyone with information regarding Kristen Sue Crash Richardson's disappearance is asked to call the Muskogee Police Department. That number is 918-683-8000. Well, let's hear from Carl himself. All right, we're going to play part of a video that Morgan Knott, Sherry Wright's daughter, who you just heard from, that Morgan recorded on her phone in June in 2018. Now, warning, this is not great audio quality. There's birds, wind, a cell phone ringing, there's other interference. And I had to watch it multiple times. I really worked on it. I did not edit a spoken word, however, not one. But even with the interference, I I think a lot of the pertinent information is audible, so I want you to hear the conversation. Then Tara and I are going to go over and read the dialogue to you so you don't go crazy like we did trying to decipher it. 
So thank you for bearing with us here, but we do believe in authenticity, and we want you to hear Carl's statements made by the man himself. Well, I know from well enough to know Carl the ticket here being called I do. called me called you can't think of anywhere she might Was it was it was it Friday the day that you all were supposed to go that she took off? Or was it Thursday? So it was I believe it was Friday Friday evening. Or it could have been Saturday afternoon. I See, again, I know Kristen very well. And she might have told me Thursday we're heading out Friday morning. Anything could have happened in that time. I know Kristen, for you all didn't get a head out this Friday night, but I don't have that information. I don't have it from her. I didn't talk to her after Thursday. Thursday was the last time Sandy talked to her. Thursday was the last time I talked to her because I remember leaving and told her I'd call her tomorrow, and she specifically told me not to call her in the morning because she wasn't talking on the fucking phone. Y'all were out of here, and that was Thursday. So I know Thursday, at least, she was and accounted for. Okay, so now you've heard that for yourself. We're going to repeat the dialogue for you so you can hear in case it was garbled, because I know it was tough. Thank you for bearing with us here. Jill's going to be sharing, and I'm going to be calling. Okay. She might have reached out and made contact. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. She hasn't called me. She hasn't called you. She hasn't called anybody. Can you think of where she might have gone? Maybe took too many pills where she might have fallen and gotten hurt and not been able to get up? Or any place, any situation, anything you can think of where she went? When she left, she didn't tell me anything, and I didn't ask because that. Again, it was it was Friday, the day you were all supposed to go, that she took off, or was it Thursday? Well, I I it was I I believe it was Friday evening, or it could have been Saturday afternoon. I can see see. I know Kristen very well. I can't. And she might have told me Thursday we were heading out Friday morning. Anything could have happened in that time. And I know, Kristen, where you all didn't get to head out until Friday night. Now, I don't have that information. I don't have it from her. I didn't talk to her after Thursday. Thursday was the last time Sandy talked to her. Thursday was the last time I talked to her. Because I remember leaving. And I told her I'd call her tomorrow. And she specifically told me not to call her in the morning because she wasn't talking on the fucking phone when you're all out of here. And that was Thursday, so I know. At least Thursday she was okay and accounted for. So now I'll let you hear from Sherry herself. 
in the video that Morgan shot when he told you and he told the investigators that Kristen left either Friday night or could have been Saturday afternoon. What are you thinking when you're hearing this? I'm thinking, can he hear himself right now? I'm thinking, can he even hear the words that are coming out of his mouth? We came upon him so fast, and, and you saw the dance, and it was, he didn't know what to do. He did not expect us ever. It is so obvious in any kind of way. Yeah. Because, holy mackerel. So now they decide they have to go to the police. Robin goes and reports her sister missing on July 6, 2018, which is confirmed by an affidavit filled out by the authorities and by the current Muskogee law enforcement officer on the case, Investigator Stephen Brown, who told us that the original officer investigating was Investigator Don Johnson, who has since been promoted. I have to ask, did he wear a floral button-down shirt while investigating? Yeah, I'm sorry. But anyway, Investigator Brown has participated in every major incident regarding this case, and he wound up taking it over on December 31st, 2018. So now on July 20th, 2018, the Muskogee police acted. We believe that this was triggered by an anonymous tip that was called in that stated that Cody Ray Campbell had told a third party that Carl Bryce had stabbed and killed Kristen Sue Richardson. As was reported in the Muskogee Phoenix on July 23rd, 2018. Now, while Investigator Brown did not discuss the contents of any tips, he did tell us that they received information that led to them writing and serving a search warrant. Now, he told us that they followed up on all tips and leads in an attempt to locate Ms. Richardson or any evidence that would assist them. And they'll continue to follow all leads and information. Now, it's what we would expect, but it sure sounds like they got some tips to me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, who is Carl Bryce? From what we've learned so far, Carl was born January 2nd, 1985 in Stigler, Oklahoma. And Stigler is the Haskell County seat with a population of 2,700 people. Carl went to Stigler High School, was in a marching band, and a member of the band Coronation Court as the senior escort. So he was fairly involved in social in high school. And from there, he went to Tulsa Community College, where he studied respiratory therapy, eventually earning an associate's degree. Like other college kids, Carl partied and was arrested for public intoxication a couple times, which doesn't make him a hardcore criminal by any means. No, not at all. He loves motorbikes, antique car shows, and hanging out with friends. But by 2012, he bought that house next to what would eventually be Kristen's residence. Only, as we mentioned, Carl's house would tragically burn down. The tipster, a third party, allegedly learned about Kristen's murder from Cody Ray Campbell. Who's this Cody guy? You might be asking yourselves. Cody is another important player in this story. Born in Muskogee, June 9th, 1990. Gosh, he's younger than I am. He attended Morris High School in Morris, Oklahoma with a population of approximately 1,300 people, just a small town for sure. Cody has a record of two domestic assault and battery in the presence of a minor, plus a felony, and has been on probation according to court records for a variety of things. From what residents of Muskogee told us, and we mean about four or five, the Campbells are an interesting group. Just recently, in real time, Cody got out of jail only to violate parole and go back to jail again in August of 2020. 
we're just out of August, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. This is a couple weeks back. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be getting to that shortly. And coincidentally, back in 2018, he found himself with no place to live as he drifted into Kristen's orbit as he was at that cause. Yep. So, Cody and Carl were hanging out when an idea came to fruition. They know, as everyone knows, Kristen has a generous and giving heart, as evidenced by her bringing Carl into her home when his house was uninhabitable. Being down and out, Cody asked Kristen if she wouldn't mind him sleeping in her garage. Now, as Kristen is known for her compassion, she told Cody, absolutely not. There is no way you are sleeping in my garage. It's way too hot for that. And Chris told Cody he would just have to move in with her and Carl until something else came along. Thus, Kristen, this big-hearted, naive sweetheart that she is, winds up on this path to personal destruction that she never saw coming, with Cody Ray Campbell becoming her second roommate. In a very telling interview with News on 6, Kristen's friend Lynn Martinez stated, quote, to be honest, I believe her kindness killed her. She gave somebody a place to live till he got back on his feet, and I believe that's what did her in. So, I'm not alone here, Tara, in my theorizing. All this is theory. Yeah, it's theory. I don't have to it It's speculating. I mean, we're speculating, but, you know, we're not alone. So, on Friday, July 20th, 2018, the Muskogee Police Department showed up in force at Kristen's home with the search warrant investigative Brown reference. Of this, the newspaper reports that Carl Bryce refused to let them in. He basically barricaded himself inside the house. Barricaded. That was unexpected. Why the hell would anyone do that? Speculation. Here's the word. Word of the day. Speculation. Mm -hmm. I think because you have incriminating stuff in your house, maybe that's why you wouldn't want to let anybody in. And yeah. standoff commenced. Yes, standoff. So, barricading. Yep. Then a standoff. Keep up, murder bookies. Things are going to start moving here really, really quickly. Yep. So, you may have noticed, but police don't like it when you barricade yourself in a place that they need access to. They really don't like it. <laughs> they don't. Not a good idea. Don't do it. This is why we have rules. This is why we have law. Yeah. Totally guessing again, but we suspect drugs were involved. We have heard numerous things about this particular item that's, again, speculation based off of things that were said. Police told Fox 23 that the standoff began that Friday morning and finally ended peacefully, thank goodness, around 2 p.m. that afternoon. And I know you'll be shocked, but Carl was arrested. So Sherry Wright briefly described what it was like driving up and seeing this massive law enforcement presence at her best friend's home because they had no idea that this was going down. When we came up on the police, they had both blocks on either side of her. They blocked off, one that cars through the SWAT tank is in her front yard. The medical examiner of the back set up those little tainted areas and digging in the backhoe. And it was honestly the most overwhelming sight I have ever had upon in my whole life. But that's just a limp. That was too bad. Oh, it had to be terrifying. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Oklahoma is. Memorial Weekend, and we lost so much time. And I know the dogs hit on that fire pit a couple of times. We know there's nothing there. And I just wondered if at some point, maybe, if they didn't have her in the fire pit, and 
removed her. Just based on two different sets of dogs. Yeah. Well, we went in fully understanding that Kristen was probably dead. I just can't even describe how that house felt. It's like I've never been there in my whole life. Oh, my goodness. I knew exactly where I was, and, and nothing was familiar. What did you think then, since we've gotten into the police going and excavating the backyard, what else is going through your mind when all this is going on? It was so, what's that word, surreal. And Robin and her husband had come up, and I stood there with them the whole time. I don't know how to describe. I, I, I think I was numb. I think we were all in shock. And me and Robin, you know, we're talking about it. But to be honest with you, as I was watching this, all I could honestly think at that moment, we know what we're waiting for, possibly. All I could think was, I can't even imagine what's going on in Robin's mind. I can't even imagine. I just wanted to where things going to be okay. Yeah. I could not get my mind off her, and that might have been, because my mind wasn't ready to process what, what was going on. That had to be such a shock. Okay. From what I have read, I mean, they shut down blocks around her house, cordoning off crime tape, backhoe. I mean, I have to say, I've been involved with cases where the police haven't taken things seriously. So I have to say, good for them. Carl and Cody probably thought, hey, nobody's going to miss her. She's a disabled 51-at-the-time-year-old woman, and and nobody's going to miss her. She didn't talk about family. And he knew that her parents were deceased, so I'm pretty sure she just became very simple target. Surprise. She was loved by a lot of people. Yeah. Surprise. All right, then. So, Cody Campbell wasn't there initially, but he showed up at the scene of blockaded streets, crime tape, news trucks, police cars, flashing red and blue lights all around 4.30 p.m. afternoon. He was patted down. And he actually voluntarily went off in a patrol car to make himself in, according to his cousin, Cassie McGovern. Now, Cassie McGovern had been at the house with Carl. Evidently, Cassie had a little bit of common sense. She exited the house at the request of the police while Carl decided to resist, or so we think. But the Carl shenanigans standoff did not thwart the police from doing what they'd come to do. Mm-mm. No, they were not going to waste any time. Muskogee PD, Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation Agents, and the state medical examiner on site and hard at work. They were looking for Kristen. This was an enormous undertaking from what I understand. Uh, some photographs and stuff, it's incredible. Trust me, when we were researching and I saw the word standoff in an article, I was like, what the holy hell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, standoff. Because, yeah, that's always going to go well for you. Thank God it did come out okay. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right, so they've got the medical examiner in Kristen's backyard as authorities are digging, as well as sifting for evidence with a rake and putting evidence tags everywhere. And they spent the better part of that weekend processing her house, as well as the front and the backyard. Three days later, it was reported that the Muskegee County District Attorney, Orville Loge, had filed first-degree murder charges against an unknown suspect, John Doe. Not every state allows John Doe warrants, but Fortunately for us, Oklahoma does. And this is a premeditated murder charge. And in Oklahoma, that's called felony malice murder. They can carry a death penalty charge, life without parole, or life in prison, as a jury would determine. 
As reported in the Muskogee Phoenix, this search followed up yet another tip from, quote, a subject close to the case, according to a police affidavit. The tipster said that Cody Ray Campbell had informed them that Carl Bryce stabbed and killed Kristen Crash Richardson. Now, I spoke to a private investigator friend of mine, and usually these John Ray warrants are related to DNA. Not always, but large, large numbers. Yeah. Now, we know and can confirm that DNA was taken and processed in this case. The results remained a closed subject because it is, of course, still active. And one thing that Investigator Brown told us is that they do not have Kristen's DNA profile. They don't have it. So this is a definite speed bump in the case. However, Investigator Brown said that he has spoken to the, quote, OSBI, which is the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, about this as they use the OSBI lab for their DNA analysis. And they have advised that with Robin and Kenneth Richardson III's DNA, Kristen's siblings, they may be able to create a partial profile, but not a complete profile for Kristen. So several samples have been taken and sent for analysis, which is pending. And he probably wouldn't tell me, <laughs> even though I asked. Even though things are a lot quicker now, as when DNA analysis are started, like what we learned from Michelle McNamara and I'll be gone in the dark. This stuff takes a very long time. Especially if you're trying to put together a partial yeah. from siblings. Yeah. Now, based on this tipster, we have to wonder who John Doe is. Number of candidates here. Carl? Cody? Listen, we don't know. I mean, we can't say this. I mean, it would just be totally unfair to start pointing figures at people. And we believe in being responsible in telling this story. It's not going to be Jerry Springer here. We're just not going to do that because facts really do matter. No chair throwing at Geraldo Rivera. It's not going to happen. Nope. Not here. But here's a fact for you. Both Carl and Cody were arrested as material witnesses in this case. And remember, Kristen's truck, the one Sherry said she had seen Cody's long service written on it and marker. And we're being told that she saw them riding around it and as well, it had gone missing. But now, it had been located. What is ironic, Cody was arrested for possession of a stolen vehicle. Carl was charged with receiving and possession of a stolen vehicle. And was convicted on October 10th, 2019 and given two years probation. That's appropriate, as Carl has some minor speeding tickets and a noisy muffler charge on his record. But nothing heavy duty prior to this. Cody Campbell, as we told you, is another story with a far more checkered criminal past. Cody was on parole already for assault and battery. Thus, Cody was convicted and sent to jail for his part in possessing a stolen truck, a felony, a truck that was found in Carl's garage. Cody did his time in jail and was recently paroled in 2020. He has recently been seen walking the streets of Muskogee until parole violation, so he is in jail, last we heard. But this is important. This truck that was stolen was not Kristen's. Not Kristen's. Investigator Brown cleared all that up for us because, like so many others, we all thought they were charged due to having possession of Kristen's truck. Not the case. Yes, Cody and Carl wrote lawn service on the truck in black marker. Yes, they were using it to make spare money doing lawn work around town and use Kristen's truck, which is a fact that was informed by Investigator Brown. But it is Carl's story that Kristen gave him permission to use the vehicle in her absence. So that is not a crime. Do have links to Carl and Cody's criminal indictment history on our blog, 
www.murdershockworkup.com provided to us by the SOVPD. So thank you very much for that assist. Yeah, they were real helpful with that. And again, according to multiple tips that we have received from our wonderful murder bookies in Muskogee, we know how much we love and appreciate you. So we have two very interesting eyewitnesses here, Carl and Cody, and Carl with a very fluid, inconsistent, ever-changing story. Hmm. Uh, Tara, do you realize that Carl and Cody were arrested as material witnesses in a probable murder case of Kristen? And while this is going on, they managed to steal someone else's truck while all this is going down. I mean, how incredible is that? I can't even put two and two together these days. I don't think I'd have my shit together enough to <laughs> commit a crime and then go do another one in the process. You're being watched, so let's go steal a truck and hide it in my garage. I mean, these yeah. are criminal masterminds oh, here. There's that, too. There is that, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we certainly can't deny that they do have a criminal record. We have more of Sherry and Carl's conversation about what happened to Kristen for you. First, do you see why Sherry's not going to let Carl off the hook when she had him in her sights? In that recorded conversation she had with Carl, Sherry continues to ask him about the story he first told her and investigators in those early days right after Kristen went missing. Again, the recording quality isn't the best, but we want you to hear it. Then we will read the transcript to you for clarity's sake. Sherry said you told her that somebody came by the house and she took off with an old girlfriend. No, I didn't say that to Sherry. I don't know. I, I, don't I haven't know. been able to get a hold of her today. When you told me that she met somebody up there and did not have What? You told me that she met somebody up there and did not have You actually told me from the beginning that you all made it up there because she met somebody and took off the We did We didn't. told her somebody came by the house and she took off with an old girlfriend. No, I didn't say that to Terry. I don't know. I know. Haven't you been able to get a hold of her today? I I tried to get a hold of her yesterday. She didn't answer my phone calls, so I don't know. But you told me she met somebody up there. What? And had taken off. Was that true? You told me she met somebody and took off from Oklahoma. You you actually told me from the beginning that you all made it up there and didn't go in because she met someone up there and took off to Colorado. We we didn't we we didn't we didn't make it up there. Crash took off from here. Yes, I I don't know who she took off with. Cody even saw her take off. We don't know who went. What did she take off in? If you saw her take off. I believe it was like a uh, bronze colored like Ford Taurus. Oh my gosh, there is 
just so much to unpack here. Now, we've heard both parts of the recording that Morgan not made, and we're using this with Morgan's permission, just in case you wondered. So, Carl had previously told Sherry, and she was very adamant about this particular point, that Kristen had hooked up with a woman at Rocklahoma. You mean to tell us that this supposed woman was so spectacular that Kristen never met up with her other friends at Rocklahoma after all the plans and money saved, getting ready to literally rock and roll that she dumped everyone, Carl, friends, even Lizzie Hale, and ran off to Colorado? That Kristen literally ditched Lizzie Hale? I don't think so. No. Then never picked up her phone or answered a text from Sherry or Robin or anyone else ever again. And then she only responded to Carl. Murder bookies? Think on that. Mm-hmm. So many things to wonder. Oh, and the, the bronze Taurus? All right, we'll start here. So since I live in Pennsylvania, not Oklahoma, and I'm a horribly nosy person, I went to Google Maps to locate Kristen's home. And this night. And the Google Maps uh, is from 2012. And so I'm, you know, schooling around and figuring out where she lives and all. And I confirmed that Carl was in, in 2012 actually living next door to the house that Kristen would be living in in the future. And look at that. Guess what kind of car is parked at Kristen's house? A bronze Pontiac. A bronze Pontiac that is visually very, very similar to a bronze Taurus. Huh. It's interesting that it's basically the same car that Carl says Kristen and her mystery woman took off in. Isn't that weird? Oh, very, very strange. That a car that Carl would be familiar with because his next-door neighbor happened to drive one that might be recalled in a pinch when you had to come up with something. Funny thing. I'm speculating here, but memory is a funny thing. Now, there happens to be a theory called source or reality monitoring, and it's put forth by doctors Marsha Johnson and Carol Ray. And they write that when you are creating a lie about something, you try to pull from your memory. Because even when you do this, your false events become more concrete and therefore become more believable to the liar. And they sound more believable to the people you're trying to pitch the lie to. Does that make sense? So there is a little known movie. It is called Cheats. And I love this movie. It makes me laugh every single time. But it's about a group of high school kids who cheat on an exam. And they steal it from the teacher. And they go through crazy hoops and shenanigans to get everyone to pass this test. But one of my favorite lines that I know from that movie is said, Bullshit is in the detail. That's perfect. That's exactly right. That if you have this image of this car tucked away in your memory in a pinch when you're generating bullshit, you're going to pull this out of your memory, and it makes your story more plausible. The more details you have, the better you're going to believe, but be careful trying to remember those details. Oh, exactly, especially if there's uh, (sighs) drugs and things going on. Again, we speculate that, you know, this could, could have happened, and that's how memory and lie generation works at times. Yeah. 
Now, listen, Murder Bookies, if you have anything to say about this speculation, you can always email us at jillandtara at murdershipbookclub.com. We'd love to hear what you're thinking. And there's comparison photos. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, they are. Absolutely. So now, the other confusing bit that we want to take apart here is Kristen left Friday night, or maybe Saturday afternoon. You heard Carl's words. Carl's story has changed from what he initially said to Sherry and also to the police, so he's either confused or lying. To us, that's a red flag, or red mountain, if you listen to our Ted Bundy episode. We've verified that his story about what happened that fateful weekend and the days following has changed multiple times. And Robin, Kristen's sister, told us that the police had run Kristen's cell phone info, which indicated that her phone pinged in Muskogee all weekend. Not up at Rocklahoma or anywhere else. That means her cell phone never left Muskogee. And we can extrapolate... Very likely, Kristen never did either. If so, it is possible that Carl's story of them going to Rocklahoma, Kristen hooking up with some woman, is completely bunk. And Carl now realizes this. Is that why his story changes? Again, we can surmise that perhaps Carl had forgotten he told Sherry the earlier version of events of May 25th. Hence the gaping mouth, the stammering, shaking his head, deer in headlights look, when she confronts him, again, you can watch the video as well. Was Carl Bryce lying? What do you think? Use your common sense. It's your superpower. Remember what we always say? Hey, trust your gut. We're just throwing these questions out there. We want to get everybody thinking down in that area back to 2018 to try to rustle up some memories. Now, Tara, Sherry also told us that to her, it appeared that Carl had gotten heavily into drugs, possibly meth, and that was something that really affected his relationship with Kristen. I'll let you hear from Sherry herself. The more he was into that, the more fearful Kristen became, the more obvious he became in that, yes, something was wrong with him. That was very much there. That fear with her was very much there towards the end. Now, if that is the case, and research has shown that drugs can fuel anger and rage, that can really lead to serious consequences, and it may be very prevalent to unraveling what happened to Kristen. Now, the UN just came out with their 2019 study on global homicide. Yes, I read these things. What? I, I do. Okay. She shares it with me. <laughs> I do. All right, 37% of homicides were committed by someone under the influence of drugs. And if you include alcohol in this, it spikes to 90%. 90. That is... Crime of passion. Yeah. Now, remember, this is a global study. It covers 85 countries, but it reinforces the idea that heavy episodic drug use can be a factor, not the cause, but can be a factor in violent crimes like homicides. Now, specific to the United States, the homicide rate climbs when people, wait for it, use heroin, cocaine, and the winner of the Homicide Statistic Award, methamphetamine. 18% were on meth, 17% on cocaine, and 12% were on heroin. And that's not getting to all the other stuff. It is a very, very complicated report going on for several hundred pages, but it deals with a host of these intersecting agents 
But you get the idea of why it may be relevant to this case, which is why I brought it up. Yeah. And, I mean, we have heard reports. Uh, so we did hear from Lynn Martinez, who was in a relationship with Chris for several years, the new book with Carl Bryce and Campbell. She contacted us. And she said that Chris and Carl were at her home several times before Chris went missing. Chris was having a hard time working due to a bad back. And so this was confirmed what Sherry had told us about Kristen being on disability. So Lynn said Kristen and Carl would do some lawn care together to make some cash. And Lynn was happy to help out a friend and said that they could work on her yard. One of the last times that Lynn saw Chris alive, which was roughly a week before Rockahoma, was when she and Carl were over there doing yard work for her. And at the time of the visit, Chris showed Lynn an envelope full of cash that was strictly for their upcoming trip. And she wasn't going to let Carl anywhere near it. It's pretty much what she said verbatim. Not going to let him anywhere near it. Because she knew he would blow it on drugs. Wow. And calls another time, so, two months prior to this, that Chris was limping and was having a hard time breathing. And Kristen explained to her that she was doing something in her backyard. She tripped. She fell on the back step. Carl came to help her, but she wouldn't let him help her up. And that was when a literal switch was flipped. Put it into Lynn's words, quote, something in him snapped, end quote. And he proceeded to kick Kristen several times while she was down and even stomped down on her with the full weight of his foot. And according to Chris, she was sure that she had some broken ribs. Wow. You know, Sherry told me the exact same story, independently of Lynn telling it to you, but the same thing she fell and Carl losing it and brutally breaking Kristen's ribs that way. So it does give credence to the story as a fact and to where my thinking is going. Major Red Mountain here. Oh, God, Kristen, I'm so sorry. The anxiety and fear that she must have felt. Oh. Yeah, and, you know, a month later, it almost seemed like she was escalating. There's another attempt made by Carl on Kristen where Kristen told Lynn about her waking up at one point with him, like, jumping on her and trying to choke her. And the only way that she got him to let go was she kicked him in the nuts. Yeah, just let him go. But he tried to choke her while she was sleeping. God. So I have to wonder what went on that morning. They were planning to go somewhere, and what happened, you know? God, this is horrible. And I realized Kristen needed him economically and to help pay out the bills, so she no doubt felt trapped and tolerate the physical abuse because of her finances. But this is not okay. This is domestic violence. If he or she abuses you once, it is going to happen again. This is cyclical. And you don't have to be in a romantic relationship in order for this to be domestic violence. Oh, no, absolutely not. A lot of times they'll beg and they'll promise it'll never happen again. And guess what? Promises are broken and it does happen again. Listen, there are links to sources for anyone suffering in this situation on our blog. And please, if you are in danger like Kristen was, please get help. Reach out. Do not suffer in silence. They will help you make a safe plan to get out of this. COVID has made these situations a lot scarier, but there are resources out there. Please reach out. You still can get help. Yeah. And so part of the stuff that we learned was that Carl Bryce was in a very bad car accident a couple years prior to Chris's disappearance. 
And from photos we've seen, yes, we are those people who find things. He is lucky to be alive. He suffered severe head trauma with a few deep gashes to the back and side of his head. But, you know, we don't know much about his early life, but it seems that he did have a dark side while he was living with Chris, which could have been worsened by his accident. Uh, we do know a little bit about head trauma and some of the other cases that we've read previously. So depending on the area of the brain impacted, like just severe changes in emotion or personality can be detected leading to acts of severe aggression or poor impulse control, which is evidenced by Carl and his attacks on Chris. Oh, you're not kidding. Absolutely. From the photos of Carl's car, it was fairly crushed, airbags deployed, and that head injury, he was cut up very badly on the right upper sides of his head. That's, it looked really bad. Yeah, it hurt. That's the temporal and glial lobes of the brain that are impacted there. Now, I'm no neurologist, but I did teach neuroscience as part of psychology, especially where it came to behavior like this. And if, and I do say if, he sustained any damage to these parts of his cerebellum, behavioral changes can develop. So in the temporal area, you can have auditory sensation, perception, hearing loss, problem with auditory and visual input, failure to recognize faces. That doesn't seem to be part of Paul's problem, though. Wernicke's aphasia is a disturbance in language comprehension, not understanding spoken words, and then impacting your long and short-term memory. Now, this gets interesting, too, because it can also affect aggression, irritability, increased anger, alter your sexual behavior. That's where that impulse control comes in. And then in the parietal lobe, aphasia, which is the inability to find the right word you want. You might want to say pass the milk and you say monkey wrench, that kind of thing. Reading problems, diminished writing or drawing abilities, eye-hand coordination is off, mathematical problems are off, dealing with spatial acuity, any of these can be quite debilitating. Yeah, absolutely. If Carl is any of these in any varying amounts, it can definitely be a source of frustration, which can trigger anger, rage, impulsivity, which can contribute to other violent behaviors. Mention them here, but you can intuit what those are. We can't know for sure. All we do know is he sustained a rather intense head injury during a car accident. There was insurance money from the car accident and the house fire, but Chris had told Lynn that he had spent the majority of it on drugs. So again, here we have the drug angle. From Chris, Lynn knows that drugs were kept on the property, hence a barricade, not letting anyone in stand off. Mm-hmm. Mostly pills and marijuana, though, from what we understand. And Lynn can attest that both Chris and Carl took Adderall recreationally, but crystal meth may also have been involved. Chris was not. They used her. No. She did not. But there are also several firearms that he purchased, and the police were most likely aware of these weapons. Hence, the standoff at their house when they first came up in for. Oh my god, that could have gone so badly. Oh my god. Depending on what kind of firearms they were, absolutely. So, Cody Campbell, again, another story. Lynn said that Carl was a follower, and he would go along with whatever Cody suggested. Quote, Cody is bad, bad, bad. End quote. Lynn believes that they wanted the money that Chris had saved for Oklahoma. Ultimately, she believes they killed her and threw her in the Arkansas River. This is also something that she heard as well. It's something that she has been told. 
contracting Chris's phone, as we mentioned earlier, and never left Muskogee. The last ping was at the northeast part of town, near the Arkansas River. Lynn worked at a company called Proform, which was a company that made gas tanks for school buses. And Cody also worked there for a while as well. And some of the employees who hung around with Cody are the ones who told Lynn the story of Chris being killed by Cody and Carl and then thrown into the river. Lynn stated that Cody had bragged to co-workers about the fact that he stabbed someone. He never used Chris's name, specifically. And another woman that worked with Lynn mentioned that she had heard that Chris was strangled. So we have stabbing, we have strangulation, we have a couple different things here. But this might actually be a more plausible theory, the strangulation, as there was no blood found in Chris's home. At least that we could have Right. So it seemed that the Campbell family has quite the reputation down in Muskogee, particularly Cody. Most of the workers who Cody had around with were convicted felons. Therefore, unfortunately, we can't guarantee that no one went to the police. And Lynn would agree with that. No one wants to be on the family's bad side. What Lynn said did strike a chord with me was, quote, when Chris and I were together, we were talking and she had said that when she died, she wanted her ashes to be put in her mother's urn. We were super close, and I promised her I would make sure that happened. And I'm trying to find her so that I can keep my promise. Wow. I appreciate Lynn sharing this with us. I know it's never easy to speak about difficult matters that run deep to your heart and can make you fearful at the same time. But that makes this part a bit easier for me. Okay, murder bookies, I do admit that this part I kind of enjoy in a weird way. It's when I put on my Sherlock Holmes hat and I begin to turn my inner laser light into analyzing exactly what Carl said, including his body language and his facial expressions. Dr. Paul Ekman is the psychologist who is known for identifying the nine emotions and he theorizes that they are universally experienced by all human cultures in the same way, on their facial expressions. They're innate. And the emotions he identified were happiness, sadness, disgust, fear, surprise, and anger. And he later added pride, shame, embarrassment, and excitement. So I was trained in Ekman's process for recognizing micro-emotions, those flashes, those tells that you unconsciously reveal before you unconceal yourself behind your mask once more. And I have also had some practice in statement analysis in my work with private investigators. So this was right up my alley. So before we get into further analyzing, just as Jill was kind of going off on some of her expertise, I don't think we've really touched on this, I think, since Lizzie episodes. But Jill is a certified psychology educator. And she's taught psychology for 30 years until she retired about six years ago. She also teaches a course on psychology of serial killers in the Philadelphia area. That hopefully she'll continue still. We'll see. We don't know about in-person teaching at this point. And she has also been a researcher for the Without Warning podcast. So she cheats on me a little bit with another podcast, but okay. <laughs> but she's been doing that for the past two years. And she does profiling for some alleged criminals there. Thank you, Tara. That was nice. All right. So when you really start to further analyze what Carl was saying to Sherry, there's a few cues that take on some consideration in determining deceitfulness. According to experts online, like Stephen David Lampley and Mark McLeish. So Carl doesn't use complete sentences. A lot of us don't, but we'll also complete our thoughts. He's not doing that either. 
there's seven times in that three-minute recording where he's starting to say something and just stops. He is not interrupted by Sherry. He just stops mid-sentence. Now, this signals that he is internally editing his commentary, and he hits a snag. So he just gets caught up. When you're speaking freely, you don't do that. He's also using hedging statements and hesitations. For example, when he was asking you know, Sherry's question, well, when did Kristen leave? Most of it would say she left Friday or Friday night. Not Carl. No, he's like, uh, 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 it was, uh, uh, I believe it was Friday evening. I That's... recall I played him in the, <laughs> in the script, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? That's a pretty lengthy qualifier when you can say Friday night. Yeah. You know, he's making it up as he goes along, as Stephen David Lampley would point out. Remember, bullshit is in the details. Mm-hmm. And then Occam's razor, which we'll talk about a lot, probably in our next series. Mm-hmm. The simplest answer is always the most logical it is. Now, his physical movements, watch that video again. It's on our blog, guys. His physical movements are really interesting. The hesitant gestures, the no-no shaking of his hands, and the shaking of his head back and forth, putting his hands between himself and Sherry. Now, most of these are just illustrator gestures, just accentuating what he's saying. He's mostly doing it unconsciously. But putting his hands between himself and Sherry are indicative of him distancing himself. He is uncomfortable. He is really awkward with what is going down, and it is very, very clear in the conversation as well. He's trying to reaffirm this new version of events to Sherry, but he's also realized that Sherry is not buying this. Now, the truest thing that Carl says in this recording, where there's no qualifiers, no real hesitations, we didn't make it up there. That's what we call a tell. That happened. They didn't make it up there. Nope. They never left. Now, where does this leave the family and the loved ones? Well, they're kind of in limbo. They don't know what happened. They can only think of probabilities and possibilities and likelihoods, but nothing with certainty. And Sherry said something to me that really helped me understand what these loved ones endure. And I'm going to let you hear from her. We're not going to let it go. Mm-hmm. I, I have the worst time continuing in this moment. And at the same time, I don't have any idea how not to. When she said that, I guess I'm getting choked up and I'm just thinking about it. Now, I believe that Kristen Sue Richardson and Carl Bryce did not make it up to Oklahoma because something stopped them from ever leaving Muskogee, as evidenced by the fact Kristen's cell phone never left the city based on pings and other friends for work for her and did not find her at Oklahoma. Why didn't you and Kristen leave as planned, Carl? From Sherry, we know Kristen was all packed up, ready to go, logos painted up, cap on the truck. Muskogee Police Inspector Brown did tell us that while, quote, every missing person case is different, we usually begin with the last person known to have had contact with the missing person, and in this case, it's Carl Rice, her roommate. So we have questions. So what happened when Kristen came home that Friday morning? Were you ready to leave, Carl? What was said, and why was Kristen heard from again? So questions we do not know the answer to. Guess what? Someone in Muskogee knows something. We know you do. 
because tips have been called in, and there's always someone who knows something. Somebody wants to help, as evidenced by those tips. Someone wants Kristen brought home to her family and loved ones. Someone cares enough to call these in. So what's happened since Morgan Knott's recording? So three months after Kristen vanished in September of 2018, a search of the Fort Gibson Dam area was initiated. Joining law enforcement in the search was a volunteer force called Bridging the Gap Search Team, led by Director Julie Pendley. Of Kristen, Julie said, quote, She was just one of the most generous people, or is one of the most generous people, end quote. Now, Bridging the Gap Search Team evolved from Julie's own experience with a missing person case. Her cousin Ben and his best friend Cody. Back in 2015, they'd gone to Oklahoma. Huge fans, just like Chris. Only that Memorial Day weekend, there had been torrential downpours, and the guys headed home, intending to return when the concert resumed. Only they disappeared. Of the group's origins, Julie wrote, quote, The reality is that law enforcement does all they can, and sometimes that's enough. But often, whether considered a success or not, it is primarily the family who works tirelessly to help bring their loved ones home. End quote. The community rose together to search for Ben and Cody for 16 days. They constantly mapped, gridded areas, explored possible routes the young men could have taken, and these volunteers never wavered. And Julie recognized that something extraordinary was taking place. And on day 16, though, Julie finally got the call that Ben and Cody had been found. And unfortunately, they were deceased. The boys had missed their turn on the Onampa boat ramp. Learning the sad news, the volunteers arrived at the location, and the team just swept Julie up into an enormous, fierce hug, breathing deeply and relying on that deep bond that had been forged the previous 16 days, and it was a bond that would prove unbreakable. So from this point forward, this group swore that they would continue to search for the lost, the vanished, the missing, and they have. And this is how Julie became involved in looking for Kristen Sue Richardson in that fall of 2018. And we spoke to Julie Pendley about this search for Kristen. So Julie Pendley from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, thank you so much for sitting down with us and having this conversation and filling us in about your organization, Bridging the Gap, and how you helped in the Kristen Sue Richardson case. Really glad you're here with us. Thank you for having me. And I just am so appreciative of what you're doing and keeping Kristen's name out there. It's the way that that we'll find answers. Well, that's what we're looking for. Listen, I want to give you a chance. Tell me a little bit about Bridging the Gap and what your volunteers do. Yeah, um, so we're Bridging the Gap um, search team, and we are a group of volunteers that mostly we help the families of adult mostly missing. What we found is that with adult missing, they don't end up getting as much assistance from law enforcement. Many times adults are somewhere else because they want to be, so the law enforcement, you know, understands and accepts that. You hear that all the time. You know, my adult daughter is missing or my son went and is gone. And they're like, well, they're adults. They're allowed to be gone. How do you investigate that? And when the parent has that gut instinct, you know, we always say trust your gut when you know something's wrong. So that's when that's when you bridge the gap. That is what we try to do is bridge that gap. What we find is that law enforcement... They have their job, and then the family has their situation. Those two are really very different things. There's not anyone who actually works with that family 
side by side with the and like kind of helping bridge that gap with law enforcement, helping them to those resources. And we found that it's a huge problem, you know, and it's not just here, it's everywhere. So my hope, honestly, is to just empower more people to do the same, to get out. Lend a hand. Help your neighbor. Yeah. Share the flyer. When a missing flyer comes across your Facebook feed, share that thing. It only takes a second. It may make all the difference. That one share may turn into a thousand shares, and, you know, that could bring them home. I've seen it happen many times. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell me, how did you get involved with Kristen's case? Kristen's case actually is really close to my heart in that she and I are the same age. You know, we're, we're both Indian. We're, I mean, we just have so many things in common. And a good friend of mine that was very close with Kristen reached out. And this friend, she had helped us with some searches in the past. I started working with her, started doing a little investigating. I started to realize that there were a few areas that had a potential to be probable sites. And all I need is just a possibility. If there's even a possibility that an area might hold answers, we're going to search it. And then when we realized that we had some pretty good tips, we went ahead and it seems like tips have been coming in at critical junctures throughout this whole time that she's been missing. What's crazy is that she went missing at the end of May. They reached out to us. It was August. So she wasn't even reported missing until July. Uh, yeah, July. Yeah. So she had been missing already for two months. That was an unusual thing right off the bat about this case. So tell me about searching. Where did you go? What actually happens during this? Okay, well, on our first search, we met with her family night before um, at Kristen's house. That was when I noticed, actually, that there was some scraping on the camper top of the truck that they had been driving that she had just recently painted, and which also led me to believe that the dam site, which is where we were going to search the next day, might hold the answers because it appeared to have been driven up into some shrubs and scrapes. Oh, like uh, tree branches and things yeah, scratching the branches. top of the paint. All the roads out there are overgrown roads. Pretty much any of them that you go down out there are going to do a little scraping on the side of the vehicle. So I felt really good about the area that we were searching. So we went ahead and went full in and called for volunteers, had the detective from the police department out with us, and we met up out at the dam and completely combed any area that was accessible by road, any area where we felt like they might have been able to physically get um, a body to the area. We combed the entire thing and had no results. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, we went back to the house and started looking at other sites. So then we did like an additional four or five searches in other areas that we had other tips on. And Um, we did not find Kristen's body. We have not found her yet. So we really need these tips to keep coming in. We need these people who know something because we know they've called in information. So we need these people to step up. We know that people know. People know where she's at and what happened. There's actually one property that... I'm absolutely desperate to search, but it is a private property, and I can't get permission. Yeah, we've been working on permissions, but 
it's an area where the suspect had been working, clearing some brush and doing some landscaping. Familiar with the area. And, you know, had been going in and out with brush and digging machinery back there. He and another fellow that is also a suspect. The two of them had been working out there in the week after she went missing. So it's very high on the possibility list. I'm almost desperate enough to just go, you know. I know. You, you want to just, just do it. Yeah. But. <laughs> I'm on that property desperately. <sighs> but, um, you know, you just have to keep looking. And hoping that you'll get permission to do that. Yeah. Right. And praying that people like you keep doing this and and keep Kristen's story alive. Because things happen and people forget. And we can't let that happen. If we're talking about it and we're talking about that kind of thing, that people were were in that area and were working that area and a car or truck was going back and forth in that area, someone may have seen that. They're not connecting it to to Kristen's case. But if they get that context that that's a possibility, you might have a memory jarred. So that's what we can hope for is to keep talking about it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate your organization. I appreciate your passion, your energy. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is one incredible volunteer force for good. And it's unfortunate it didn't help in Kristen's case yet. But knowing that should something else come up, you and your team won't be out there volunteering and searching with that dedication. That is uplifting. Everyone needs to work together too. Hashtag bring crash home. Julie is amazing, and this is a wonderful volunteer team. Bridging the Gap is ready to go look for Kristen and try to bring her home. They just need permission to search this land. What can it hurt to search there? Can't. Someone has to have a discussion and get that land searched. So after the search at the Fort Gibson Dam, time would slip by. Eventually, more tips were called in, again anonymously, and were taken seriously enough that the Muskogee police executed a search warrant on an East 73rd Street South property in conjunction with the Muskogee County Sheriff's Office and Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. Now, if you think back to the top of the episode, which opened with the quote, the hum of water pumps could be heard from the road as officers hiked back and forth across the abandoned property, occasionally stopping to search in a ruined pool or near the house, just beyond a pond near the back of the property where the pumps worked to drain the water that OSAP prepared for excavating, end quote. Exactly what they saw was unknown. But someone, the person who called in, that person who sent them out there, knows something. That person was told something, overheard something, they saw something, and cares enough, again, to make that call. They made that call to the Muskogee PD. That number is 918-683-683. 8000. Again, 918-683-8000. Or you can call Crime Stoppers. Thought Jill had this on speed dial, but guess what? She doesn't, but she does now. I do now. You called me out. (laughs) But it is 1-800-222-TIP or 1-800-222-8477. And you can go even to their website at crimestoppersusa.org to submit a tip. But they aren't anonymous. They are not anonymous. 
that person could testify because he or she knows something, and you, yes, you, dear murder bookie listener out there, can get a killer off the street. All right, fact. We know the tips have been called in to the police at least three times, and I think it's many more than that. Valid, relevant, reasoned tips that held weight when evaluated by law enforcement. Enough so, affidavits, search warrants, arrest warrants were ordered by the court. So that means that there's an eyewitness living among you in Muskogee, and probably more than one. Those who cared enough to call to let them know that something horrible had happened to Kristen, something no one deserves to happen, something terribly unfair that took her life, just like that, and covered it up, buried her, threw her in the river, fed her to her dog. We don't know, but all these theories are too awful, and it speaks to the kind of man who would do this, a monster walking among you. He may look normal, seem normal, but he is not. And something may set him off again. Will it be your voice? Money troubles? Car troubles? A bad influence? Who may the next victim be if he is not caught and he continues to come and go on the streets among normal, unsuspecting people? To those who hold the key to this mystery, to those with the power over the outcome of this case, we beseech you. Every story needs a hero. Be the hero of Kristen's story. Shine the light of truth and justice as only you can do. Stand up for a victim of a great wrong and feel the admiration, praise, and dignity that comes with doing the right thing. Be an upstander, not a bystander. Claim your power over a cowardly killer who struck, hid, lied, cowers now in fear of the truth. We're all born for a purpose in this life, and this may well be yours. It may be your moment and your time, and we're here to help you. Let's get this thing done and over and put it in the rearview mirror. Let Kristen come home and rest in peace. Let her family and friends breathe more easily. And you, sleep at night knowing that everyone in town is safer for your selfless act. Be the hero in this story. Let's bring Crash home. So, anyone with information regarding Kristen's doing crash Richardson disappearance and asked to call the Muskogee Police Department. Again, that number is 918-683-8000. Leave that message for Investigator Stephen Brown. Get a killer off the street and see justice done. We are so, so, so very close. So speak up and make that call. As always, you can email us at jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. Hell, we'll submit it to it for you. We just need to have it. And Tara, our next book. Oh, yes, funny you should ask. If you haven't already started, our next book is going to be Gone at Midnight, Mysterious Death of the Man. I'm sure you all know that YouTube video or have seen that YouTube video of a dark haired young woman in an elevator acting a little bit erratically. So Jake Anderson is author. He went on a deep dive down into some pretty dark rabbit holes to investigate this case, just as so many web sleuths have done. So in this story, we talk about birth of web sleuthing, armchair detectives. We've got paranormal shit. I say shit here because it is shit. We have a haunted hotel. We have downtown L.A. 
LA skid row. We had two serial killers in residence. Two. Two. The Night Stalker and also the Austrian Ghoul. The list goes on and on and on, and most importantly, surrounding the disappearance and death of Elisa Lamb, which also ties in to the stigma of mental illness. Okay, Murder Bookies, thank you so much. Bye. We're back. Tara and I would like to thank everybody who assisted in producing this episode. Thank you very much. Robin Brown, Sherry Wright, Morgan Knott, Lynn Martinez, Julie Pendley, Inspector Stephen Brown, the Muskogee Police Department, and the other nameless persons who came forward with information, tips, and good wishes. We couldn't have done this without you. Thank you so much.